0: It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, March 16th, 2009. Let's just say that over the weekend and today, my research has yielded me an entire stack. It's huge of things that we could potentially be discussing here at fighting for the faith. I almost think I have a week's worth of stuff that we could talk about. Okay. So what do you do when you got a stack of stuff? Well, you, you just, uh, Dive right into it. I guess that's what you're supposed to do. All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment designed to help you to think biblically, designed to help you to think critically, and to compare what Christian leaders and... Well, I call them Christian rock stars, but don't think they're musicians. Christian rock stars around the country. I mean, these would be your purpose-driven guys who are holding their leadership conferences that everybody has to go to and learn how to attract the latest large crowd. Well, those guys. And and compare what they're saying to the Word of God. Uh, Why do we do that? Well, because the Word of God is true. And we sinful human beings, myself included, have This really bad habit of just making stuff up and blaming God for it. <laughs> All right, we got an interesting program lined up for you today. Uh, right off the bat, we're not going to do listener email today. I apologize. I do, there's a lot of listener email that I want to get to, and feel free to email me. You can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And by the way, you can listen to the program at your leisure. Anytime you want, uh, by going to fightingforthefaith.com. dot com, and uh, and you can subscribe to our podcast. We're available on iTunes, uh, or you can you know you can listen you know to each of the programs are all posted there at fightingforthefaith.com. and all of the archives are free. Just wanted to let you know that. However, we do encourage you if you're growing from this uh, radio outreach to uh, consider strong, more than strongly, more than consider, uh, begging. No, no, that maybe not begging. Uh, we would like you to partner with us and help to make this radio outreach possible for the long term by uh, contributing to Fighting for the Faith. You can do so by uh, sending in a check to Fighting for the Faith, Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038, or you can uh, log in to Fighting for the Faith dot com and click on the donate button by the way, we do read all of our emails it's uh, but there is no human unless we were to do like ten hours a day there 's no way we can actually respond to all of the emails that we get so uh, I want you all to know that we are we do read them all and uh, we just can 't respond to them all all right today we 're going to be talking about um, wilkerson there's a guy by the name of david wilkerson i've gotten a ton of email regarding this david wilkerson apparently he's the author of the cross and the switchblade he's a very famous uh evangelist type and he's uh predicting doom and gloom and death and destruction and we're going to do what the bible says get this we're actually going to test the prophecy that he's giving, and uh, I'll give my reasons as to why I think we should be really, really cautious when dealing with David Wilkerson's prophecies of doom and gloom. And uh, we're going to take a look at a news story coming out of Connecticut. There there was—it's not an is anymore—it was, for the moment, uh, a a Senate bill in the Connecticut uh, Assembly there that uh, was targeting the Catholic Church specifically, and this thing— outright is outside of the bounds of uh, the First Amendment. And we're going to talk about why this should concern you. Uh, We're going to look at, oh, man, uh, Granger Community Church. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about their postcard campaign for their current sex sermon series entitled Sex for Sale? Are You Buying It? Well, it turns out that uh, Granger has uh, sucked down the... Sex Challenge Kool-Aid and on the first day of their new sermon series Mark Beeson the uh, the head pastor there at uh, Granger Community Church Issued a 30-day sex challenge. Inclu- <laughs> we'll play uh, some audio from that. Uh, we won't play the whole thing. Uh, we're going to continue our w- walk through the uh, Gospel of Mark, Chapter 12. And then we've got what I would consider not a sermon, but a good lecture on uh, by a gentleman by the name of Phil Johnson. Phil Johnson writes for the Pyromaniacs website. And uh, we've got a lecture that he gave not too long ago um, called programs, get your programs exposing the flaws of the fad driven church. And I think it's a uh, stellar and worth passing along. And, uh, we'll do that tomorrow on the program. We're going to talk a little bit about Christian universalism and, uh, and we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about this, uh, gospel of life change that all of these purpose-driven guys are talking about. And so we're going to be playing part of a lecture that, uh, I gave, a while ago on three-dimensional theology it's worth reviewing and so that's on tomorrow's program so i mean talk about being organized we got all kinds of stuff going on all right so here here's the uh an urgent message from david wilkerson okay this is from his blog and it's made it's made the rounds around the world on the internet and there's all kinds of people who are taking this very seriously and um, it's it's a kind of a prophetic prediction of doom and gloom, f- specifically for New York City and parts of New Jersey and Connecticut. And uh, the question is, biblically, how are we Christians to handle this? Now, I want you to understand, I do not believe that the gifts have ceased. I am not a uh, <coughs> <cessation>, <coughs> secessionist. There it is. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. T- Tongue tied there. I am not a secessionist. I do not believe that the gifts have ceased. I don't think that that's a biblically tenable position, nor do I believe that as that a correct interpretation of God's word. Therefore, I do believe it's absolutely possible that if God wants to speak to somebody and tell them something, he is more than capable of doing that. And there's nothing in biblically that would prevent him from doing so. That being the case, our approach as Christians, I take the tack of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, it, which basically says this. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Thessalonian church. He says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast what is good. Test everything and and hold fast, that is good. So I'm not going to despise David Wilkerson's prophecy here. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to read his prophecy, and we're going to test it against God's Word. Okay? That, I think, is the Christian thing to do, the biblical thing to do. And so I'm going to read this, and uh, and then we'll, con- we'll delve into it and test it. How do we test it? Well, we test it against the Word of God, and there's some ways we can do this. All right, so it's called An Urgent Message, and David Wilkerson writes, he says, I am compelled by the Holy Spirit to send out an urgent message to all on our mailing list and to friends and to bishops we have met all over the world. An earth-shattering calamity is about to happen. It is going to be so frightening, we are all going to tremble, even the godliest among us. For 10 years, I've been warning about a 1,000 fires coming to New York City. It will engulf the whole megaplex, including areas of New Jersey and Connecticut. Major cities all across America will experience riots and blazing fires, such as we saw in Watts, Los Angeles, years ago. I was uh, in Southern California. I used to live there, by the way. (laughs) I was in Southern California during those riots, and that was a very interesting time. Anyway, Wilkerson says, there will be riots and fires in cities worldwide. There will be looting, including Times Square, New York City. What, are, what we are experiencing now is not a recession, not even a depression. We are under God's wrath. In Psalm 11, it is written, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? God is judging the raging sins of America and the nations. He is destroying the secular foundations. The prophet Jeremiah pleaded with the wicked Israel, God is fashioning a calamity against you and is, is devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each of you from your evil way and reform your ways and deeds. But they will say, it's hopeless, for we are going to follow our own plans and each of us will act according to his the stubbornness of his evil heart. That's Jeremiah 18. Uh, verses 11 and 12 in psalm 100 and uh, psalm 11 verse 6 david warns upon the wicked he will rain snares coals of fire burn burning wind will be the portions of their cup why david answered because the lord is righteous this is a righteous judgment just as the judgments of sodom and in noah's generation okay so what shall the righteous do about what God's uh, what about God's people? Well, first I give you practical word I received from my uh, for my own direction. If possible, lay in store a 30-day supply of non-perishable food, toiletries and other essentials in major cities grocery stores are emptied in an hour at the sign of impending disaster. As for our spiritual re- uh, reaction we have but two options. This is outlined in Psalm 11: We flee like a bird to a mountain or as David says, he fixed his eyes on the Lord and on his throne in heaven his eyes beholding his eyelids testing the son of men. In the Lord I take refuge. I will not I will say to my soul no need to run, no need to hide. This is God's righteous work. I will behold our Lord on his throne with his eye of tender, loving kindness, watching over every step that I take, trusting that he will deliver his people even through floods, fires, calamities, tests, trials of all kind. Note, I do not know when these things will come to pass, but I know it is not far off. I have unburdened my soul to you. Do with the message as you choose. God bless you and keep you in Christ, David wilkerson all right so what are we supposed to make of this i mean david wilkerson is a very famous christian dude with his uh, cross and the switchblade and uh, he's apparently been told directly by the holy spirit that there's pending doom and we should store up a 30-day supply of food so how do we test this how on earth where do we begin to test this prophecy because remember god's word says don't despise prophecies but test them well thankfully we've got some ways in which we can do this we can take a look at how wilkerson is handling god's word because first of all okay god the holy spirit knows what his word means and god the holy spirit would never twist or mangle his own word Right. Well, the other way we can do this is we can take a look at how Wilkerson is using law and gospel. Believe it or not, there's some ways in which we can test this. That being the case, let me let me go back and read what he said. And he quotes Psalm 11. Okay. Now back to Wilkerson's urgent message. For 10 years, I've been warning about a, a thousand fires coming to New York City. It will engulf the whole megaplex, including areas of New Jersey and Connecticut. Major cities all across America will experience riots and blazing fires, such as we saw in Watts, Los Angeles, years ago. Okay, we continue. There will be riots and fires in cities worldwide There will be looting, including Times Square, New York City. What we are experiencing now is not a recession, not even a depression. We are under God's wrath. In Psalm 11, it is written, if the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? There it is. Psalm 11, verse 3. Now, that is our first clue as to how, you know, what we can say about this alleged prophecy. Now, we can't say whether it's a prophecy from God or not at this point. We're testing it. Okay? But we've got a problem. Okay? We've got a problem. And that is, is that Wilkerson here claiming, you know, direct information from the Holy Spirit quotes to us psalm chapter 11 verse 3 the problem is and this is a big one folks context 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 psalm chapter 11 verse 3 is a sentence fragment in fact um is psalm chapter 11 written as a judgment against the united states no. In fact, let's read it in context. Let me. Where we, I, I now have my computerized Bible open, and I'm at Psalm chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. And we read, In the Lord, in Yahweh, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. Well, here's what we know for a fact. Okay. That by the way is the whole psalm. It begins with in the Lord I take refuge how can you say to my soul flee like a bird, okay? The, the the whole point here in that section of the psalm is that we take refuge like David did in the Lord. Okay? And the wicked are the ones who are trying to attack the righteous. Now, I don't see America here in this verse and Wilkerson quoting Psalm 11, three out of context is making it say something that it doesn't say. So let me read it to you again. He says, there will be riots and fires in cities worldwide. There will be looting, including times square, New York city. What we are experiencing now is not a recession, not even a depression. We are under God's wrath. Okay. That's the claim. He says that we, in the world, are under God's wrath. In Psalm 11, it is written, The foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? God is judging the raising sins of America and the nations. He is destroying the secular foundations. So here's the problem. When we test this prophecy against God's word, we see that David Wilkerson is twisting and mangling And taking God's word out of context, and by taking it out of context, he's making it say something that it doesn't say. Psalm 11.3 does not say that God is judging the raging sins of America and the nations, nor does it say that we are under God's wrath. So, strike number one, okay? We continue... Wilkerson then says the prophet Jeremiah pleaded with wicked Israel. God is fashioning a calamity against you and is devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each of you from your evil way and reform your ways and deeds. But they will say it's hopeless for we are going uh, we are going to follow our own plans and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Jeremiah eighteen eleven through 12. Well, here we don't even have to go and find the context on this one because it's really clear that this was the prophet Jeremiah pleading with wicked Israel and telling wicked Israel that God is fashioning a calamity against them. This was not written to wicked America. Jeremiah Eighteen, eleven through 12, are the words that God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah to wicked Israel. Okay? Now, the problem here is that in quoting Jeremiah 18, 11 through 12, and as I look through the balance of David Wilkerson's urgent message, the person who is mysteriously missing is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not there in this message. Now, remember, the Christian message that we've been given by Jesus himself from Luke chapter 24 is a message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus's name. Okay. Now, I hear in Wilkerson's message here a warning about a pending calamity, and I hear repentance being proclaimed. But it's a law-based repentance. It's a law-based repentance, and there is no forgiveness of sins being offered in Jesus' name to wicked America, who apparently is going to suffer the calamity of God with the rest of the world. So that's kind of strike number two there, okay? He misquotes Psalm 11, verse 3. He quotes Jeremiah 18 as if it applies to America, and it does doesn't he's calling people to repentance but he's not offering them the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ so he then quotes psalm 11 again he says in psalm 11:6 david warns upon the wicked he will rain snares coals of fire fire burning wind and will be the portion of their cup why david answered because the lord is righteous this is a righteous judgment just as in the judgments of sodom and in noah's generation so apparently uh the problem is is that he's announcing God's judgment but not proclaiming the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. So I am already having a hard time with this particular prophecy. Now, being a 40-year-old man and growing up in the Christian ghetto, uh the evangelical ghetto, sorry. Um i've seen this stuff come around the pike many times many times uh, recently does how many of you all still have maybe about 100 cans of spam sitting in your basement because you believe that y2k was going to be the end of the world uh, there was times even before that i remember when i was working at focus on the family somebody had predicted the end of the world prophesied that it was coming i mean it was like a hal lindsey type and even gave a specific date and you know what that date came and went so what should we make of this prophecy well i would say based upon the fact that it doesn't measure up to the word of god it twists god's word it misunderstands law and gospel and doesn't offer sinful America the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. That we should probably ignore this. Now, is it possible that that calamity is coming upon New York City? Well, of course. okay. But let me give you another reason why I think we should be... Um, very careful when it comes to this wilkerson prophecy and this comes from uh, world net daily okay the name of the headline is heed wilkerson's warning exclusive janet porter notes pastor made sandwiches for 9-11 workers before the attack that's the sub headline here uh, there's a problem though let, let, let me read part of the story here we go uh, this was written by Janet Porter of World Net Daily. When I was a kid, I read about David Wilkerson's "Who Took uh, David Wilkerson Who Took uh, Gospel to the Gangs of New York." I even saw the movie "The Cross and the Switchblade" that made uh, that was made about him. Many know about that, but most don't know what happened in his church just eight years ago. In the fall of 2001, David Wilkerson of Times Square Church in New York City was warned by God that a calamity was coming. For six weeks, they felt an intense burden and enormous heaviness. A critical need for intercession was so profound that David Wilkerson canceled everything on the church calendar, missions conferences, youth events, and every guest speaker. For six weeks, there wasn't a sermon. Instead, there was intercession for our nation with weeping and repentance. They knew something was coming and they prayed and, they, and that something was bad and that something was soon. So they prayed and prayed and prayed. Then Wilkerson felt God telling him something that seemed rather bizarre. He felt God telling him to make sandwiches, lots of sandwiches. What were they for? Who would eat them? That part wasn't clear, but his church did what they believed God was telling them anyway and on the 10th of september they stayed up all night making hundreds and hundreds of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches by morning they had about 2,000 sandwiches and at 8 46 a.m the first plane hit the world trade center and times square church was ready to feed and minister to rescue workers and victims of our nation's worst attack that's a great story isn't it I mean, wow, God spoke directly to Wilkerson and so much so that they prophetically, through the Holy Spirit, knew that they just needed to make sandwiches, but they didn't know what it was for. I mean, it's a great story, isn't it? The problem is it's not true. Editor's Note, World Net Daily. The story in this column about Times Square Church making thousands of sandwiches just prior to 9-11 is false. Janet Porter confirmed the story with a church staff member as she wrote the column, but was given incorrect information. World Net Daily regrets the error. So another reason why we should not be heeding this prophecy Aside from the fact that it mishandles and misrepresents and twists God's word by taking it out of context and misapplying it to America. And the fact that it doesn't correctly handle law and gospel, but preaches a gospelless repentance. Repentance without the gospel doesn't offer the forgiveness of sins, but it just announces judgment without the forgiveness of sins? I mean, what was Jesus doing on the cross? Are, aren't we Christians supposed to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations, including this one now? And even if America is under the judgment and wrath of God, we are still to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. But the other part of it is, is that somebody there at David Wilkerson's church, Times Square Church, Lied. And told this amazing story about how God told them to prepare to make, prepare for the 9-11 attacks by making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. The problem is, is that the story was a lie. So what can we do with David Wilkerson's prophecy? Round file it. Round file it. <clears throat> Unfortunately, it doesn't pass the biblical test of a prophecy we can ignore it it's not true and unfortunately it's stuff like this that ultimately gives christians a bad name cuz we're all lumped in with the people who make these types of prophecies and predictions and when they don't come true who's the one who gets blamed well unfortunately wilkerson will not he'll he'll just say that you know you know maybe maybe america repented who knows But at this point, I don't believe the prophecy even for a second, and neither should you. That's the Christian response. Test, test, test all things against the Word of God. Can't go wrong with the Word of God. Can't go wrong. All right, we're up to our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far on today's program you can do so talk back at fightingforthefaith.com talk back at fightingforthefaith.com and uh, we'll be right back
1: sack is not the measure of true christian sanctification you're listening to fighting for the faith
2: it's
1: marty python's flying circus church (laughs) Thank you, Phil. Hello and welcome back to the Evening News. Our top story this evening comes from the little town of Plano, Texas. Pastor Martin Spurgeon of Christ Redeems Church has issued a challenge to his congregation to read their Bibles for 30 days in a row. Naturally, we here at the number one relevant news network wanted to investigate and find out how people are reacting to Pastor Spurgeon's idea. Our top reporter, Mickey Dunwood, asked everyday people on the street what they thought and this is what they said. Is that kind of like the 30-day sex challenge? Because I like that one so much better because it was cardio and it was good and I lost weight and I totally burned off the calories of the stick of gum that I had for lunch today. That was so much easier than reading because reading hurts my head. I would much rather do the sex challenge, if you know what I mean.
2: The Bible is so out of date and irrelevant, I don't see how I can possibly find my purpose in
1: life. I've got Rick Warren's book. That's all I need. He wants me to what? No, I don't think I'll do that. I can't read. Doesn't he know that his church will just shrink like a frightened turtle? I want my best life now, and this doesn't fit into that category. Well, yeah, you know what? I would like to see him try that himself. Wanting more reactions to this provocative challenge, we went to Stephen Furtick and asked him what he felt about Pastor Spurgeon's challenge.
3: Did you show up to file a little bit more religious information in your already overloaded hard drive so that you could do absolutely nothing about it? The church is full of pot bellied Christians waiting to shove their spiritual food down their mouth one more time, but they don't intend to do anything to bless anybody. You are a Pharisee. You sit on the front row. You might even take notes, but you take notes so you can argue with them with your roommate after church and how I don't really believe in all that. Yeah, but if we ever start turning in this front row Pharisee crowd, I don't think the teaching's deep enough. I would like a little more hermeneutical explanation on the original languages in the Aramaic and the Hebrew. Jesus says, shut up. Help somebody, bless somebody, heal somebody, serve somebody, pray for somebody. Why don't you do something? Why don't you bring a lost friend to church with you next week, watch Jesus change their life, and then you won't be worried about how loud the music was. You'll just hope that they meet Jesus!
1: So there you have it, folks. Pastor Spurgeon has issued the challenge, and it seems that people are simply not enthusiastic. Well, that's all the news for this evening. Catch us tomorrow night when we discuss the Emergent Church's new translation of the New Testament.
0: Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. That was the theme of our 2008-2009 school year at St. Peter's Lutheran Day School in Plymouth, Michigan. We're planning for the next school year with an open house on March 22nd. For more details, please see our website, www.stpetersluthernplymouth.org or call us at 734-453-0460. That's 734-453-0460. Avast there, Pirate Christian Radio listener Have you visited the Pirate Christian Radio store yet? This is a place where you can stock up on Pirate Christian Radio gear <laughs> Don't be a stowaway on our ship. You can let your friends and neighbors know that you are a proud member of our crew by buying one of our Pirate Christian Radio t-shirts or coffee mugs. The best part is that all the proceeds help to keep our ship afloat so that we can take people's false doctrine and share the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Log on to piratechristianradio.com, click on the store link from our homepage, and do it today. You'll be glad that you did. We're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, We're working our way through a crazy stack today. We just got done talking about David Wilkerson's prophecy for doom and gloom for New York City, and doing what God's Word says: don't despise prophecies, but test them. So, what do we do? We tested it, and it just doesn't pass the biblical mustard wait a second it's muster (laughs) Uh, all right you're listening to fighting for the faith and my name is chris Rosebro, and i am your servant in jesus christ and i have to warn you this is the program that could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church Uh, especially if you're attending one of these seeker sensitive purpose-driven shallow as a thimble biblical content type of church Speaking of shallow as a thimble of biblical content or lack of biblical content, uh, we, we talked about recently Granger Community Church's uh, latest marketing ploy. Apparently, they've given up on trying to actually disciple people in God's word, and they've gone back to their purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive ways, and to kick off their falling off the wagon, they've uh, launched a new sex series entitled Sex for Sale. Now, think about it for a second. Do you really want people coming to your church because they saw a a flyer that said sex for sale? I mean, what kind of people are you attracting to come to your church? (laughs) Now, granted, they're probably sinners who need a Savior, but that's not what they're getting. That's not what they're getting. And and what, what was the big surprise in the first kickoff week of the sex for sale sermon series? Well, Granger Community Church, guess what? They launched their own. 30-day sex challenge. See, now, Ed Young, he only did seven. But Granger, they're going with a Tim Worth relevant church model, and they're... uh, Listen for yourself.
3: For the next four weeks, I want to encourage you to buy this book, Sex God, by Rob Bell. It's in our bookstore. If you're single, I want to encourage you, buy this book, read it, and get on Jason Miller's blog.
0: Okay, so if you are... Oh, man. If you showed up to Granger Community Church for their sex for sale sermon looking for sex for sale um well the thing that they were selling wasn't exactly sex if you're not married i mean that work with me here if you're single they want you to buy rob bell's book sex god (sighs) the the subtitle is exploring the endless connections between sexuality and spirituality guaranteed to be a blessing for all okay we continue
3: Jason Miller is one of our pastors here. He's a tremendous man of faith. And he's going to be uh, working on his blog, among other things, with tools that will help us take our thoughts captive and serve God in the days ahead. So if you're single, get this book, all right? This will help you in the days ahead. If you're married, then I want to ask you to get this book, 30 Days to Intimacy in Your Marriage. This is written by a friend of mine, Paul Wirth. Uh, and
0: and uh, keep in mind, Paul Worth. We've we've actually reviewed several of Paul Worth's sermons here at Fighting for the Faith. Most notably, we've reviewed his Kung Fu Panda sermon and his Batman sermon. Yeah, the the Dark Knight. And let me but just put it this way: Paul Worth is about as theologically sharp as a bag full of wet mice. Sound doctrine? He doesn't even know the term. He's a he's biblically illiterate, and he's in, in the pulpit. He knows more about Batman and Kung Fu Panda than he does about his Bible. So here we've got Granger Community Church promoting. Uh, the 30 Days uh, a Journey to Intimacy, which was the book that followed Tim Worth's 30-day sex challenge last year. Because remember, Tim Worth is the guy who launched this whole sex challenge stuff. And now Granger, rather than taking the lead, they're doing the monkey see, monkey do thing regarding the sex challenge. So, <laughs> let's see. Paul gave us permission to print... The cover just for
3: us. This isn't the cover in Paul's original book. We said, could we print it just for our church? So we bought 800 of these. That's all we have. 800 copies of this book. Look, I even put my picture on the back. And, uh, and, and it's, it's Paul's story. Uh, Paul and his wife uh, married for years. Uh, Paul's a pastor. And Paul drifted
0: in his marriage. And chose unfaithfulness to his wife. Now, it's going to stop for a second, okay? This is terrible and it's tragic. And it's sinful. You know what's missing in all of this, in talk about sin and taking our sexual thoughts captive at Granger, is uh, mm, the forgiveness of sins offered by Jesus Christ. You know, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Heard of that? And this is the story That he and his wife have
3: written for us. This is their story. Their marriage is now restored and rich and deep. And so they have this wonderful tool to help married couples. So if you're married, I'm asking you to do two things. Buy this book and have sex every single day for 30 days.
0: Uh, Yeah, you heard that right. Granger Community Church wants you to do two things. I mean, they I guess they weren't kidding when they said there was sex for sale at Granger Community Church. They want you to buy a book and have sex for 30 days. Those two things. Yeah, both.
3: Both. Buy the book. It's at both cafes. It's in the bookstore. As soon as the service is over, buy this book. And have sex every single day for 30 days. Some of you'll have to back it down a notch to just have sex once a day for 30 days. But every single day, 30 days. I told Sheila, I said, "Honey, we got the whole tr- the whole church is going to be doing this." She said, "What?" I said, "Yeah, everyone everyone married, they're all going to be having sex every single day for 30 days." She said, "What?" I said, "It's, a, it's in the book." And I had my my pictures on it. We got to we got to do this. So I just want you to know,
0: Sheila and I are with you. We're committed to you. Cuz that's what Jesus would do. I mean, we I mean, we read in in the scriptures about all of these sex challenges that the apostles um, started you know the guys who hung out with jesus for three years you know peter who walked on the water with him who forsake the lord and uh, you know those guys you know, see because after jesus ascended into heaven at pentecost remember that god the holy spirit came down tongues of fire and then what happened is is that all the people that were assembled in jerusalem for the day of pentecost heard about the wonders of sex in their own language through the preaching of the apostles on the day of pentecost no, they didn't. This is completely missing the point in turning Christianity into some kind of a therapy. And unfortunately, when you do this, what you've done is you've turned Christianity into another law-based religion. Do you want to have a satisfying marriage? Well, then you better hop on board the latest sex challenge or fad that's breezing through the church. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's kind of... This is just ridiculous. Not at all. This is a complete distraction away from Christianity and the cross. And we wonder why the church isn't growing. Why? Because you know what? God doesn't take somebody and convict them of their sin and their unbelief, drive them to their knees in despair and repentance through the preaching of sex challenges. He does it through the preaching of the law And then we are to follow that preaching up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This, though, is something completely different. It's strategies on how to make your marriage more intimate. Simple solution, just have sex for 30 days. And you know what? If your marriage is struggling, well, it's your fault because you only made it 28 days. Oh, man. It's just absolutely depressing. Depressing. You'd think they would have learned after the miserable results of their reveal now sur- survey, but see the thing is, is that they've got to stay relevant, and uh, they're not going to do it this you know without doing crazy things like this. All right, we're going to switch gears here. Got a news story that I want to share with you, and it's about the Catholic Church, and it's about the Connecticut State Assembly, and it involves you, even if you are not a Roman Catholic. This is a story that you should care about and a story that you should keep your eye on because this is the stuff that's coming down the pike. All right, headline reads, Alarming attempt to muzzle the Catholic Church in Connecticut... That's a that's the headline from the Christian Newswire. However, the uh, this, there's a link to here, uh, uh, an op-ed piece called Shredding the First Amendment by Carl Addis Anderson from the uh, Connecticut Post. Let me read to you the, uh, the piece on the Christian Newswire first. Alarming attempt to muzzle the Catholic Church in Connecticut. Hanover, Pennsylvania, March 10th, according to the American TFP, that would be the American American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and uh, Property. So the American TFP, Tradition, Family, and Property, uh, same-sex marriage advocates and dissident Catholics are joining forces in Connecticut to usurp the authority of the Catholic bishops and pastors. And this is not an overstatement on the part of the American TFP. Now, the... Senate bill in question, by the way, has been been side, t- sidelined and tabled for the moment, but the important word there is for the moment. So this isn't an imminent threat, but this is something you've got to listen to. In fact, experts in constitutional law, as well as fair-minded Americans, are alarmed by Connecticut Senate Bill 1098, which singles out the Catholic Church introduced in the Connecticut General Assembly in early March. The bill bill repeals elements of present Connecticut law that respect the church's hierarchical form of government. The Most uh, Reverend William E. Laurie, Bishop of Bridgeport, points out on the uh, diocesan website, this bill violates the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, and it forces a radical reorganization of the legal, financial, and administrative structure of our parishes. Connecticut State Senator Michael McLacken said, The real purpose of this bill is payback to the bishops and the pastors of the Roman Catholic Church in Connecticut for opposing gay marriage. Now, that's, the he, that's, I mean, that's kind of the teaser here, but let me read to you from the op-ed piece from the Connecticut Post called Shredding the First Amendment by Carl Anderson. Now, keep in mind, Senate Bill 1098 for the moment has been tabled while they investigate the constitutionality of it. But what is, what is it all about? We read, Now, this essay concerns a controversial, controversial bill before the General Assembly that would change the way the Roman Catholic Church governs itself and its finances. The measure was withdrawn from consideration Tuesday morning, and a hearing on it scheduled for today was canceled by the co-chairman of the Assembly's judicial commi- uh, Committee until its constitutionality can be reviewed by State Attorney General Richard Blumenthal. They acted on the request of Tom Gallagher of Greenwich, who has long advocated that lay people be given greater responsibility within the church. Legislators in the Constitution state, Connecticut, have declared war on the First Amendment. The attack was launched in the form of a bill that exclusively targets the Roman Catholic Church and would strip bishops and priests of their ability to administer dioceses and parishes. In other words, the Connecticut state legislature is sticking their nose into how the Catholic Church organizes itself and it administrates itself. The bill, under consideration by the General Assembly Judiciary Committee, would wrest authority over church affairs from pastors and bishops and instead turn over control to a series of elected boards explicitly excluding bishops and pastors from voting. The bill was written and rushed before the committee without even the courtesy of a call to or request for input from any of connecticut's catholic bishops of course the first amendment couldn't be clear in its guarantee it states quote congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof that protection was extended to every citizen of the united states in, in every state with ratification of the 14th amendment in 1868 Free exercise of religion includes the way a church chooses to organize. Strip the bishops and the priests of their role in financial matters and their message becomes subject to the approval of those holding the purse. Carl Anderson is spot on right. Historically, under trustee control, not only was pastoral authority practically eliminated, but the church's message was utterly dependent upon the congregation's culture and political condition. Under such a law, it is not too much to say that the Roman Catholic Church would no longer be Catholic. Boards, independent of their bishops, could create parishes more unique and, than, than universal. Some denominations prefer a, uh, a setup, but, but the point is we must maintain the uh, free to choose. We must remain free to choose. For this reason, it is precisely the free exercise religion that is at stake in this bill. Though this attack is surprising today, it is not unprecedented. Many states, including Connecticut, once maintained anti-Catholic laws that shock our modern understanding of religious freedom. In Connecticut, Catholics were legally forbidden from holding public office or owning land, Uh, into the 19th century in fact it took the constitution state nearly three decades after ratification of the u.s constitution to grant something resembling first amendment religious freedom to catholics okay i'm going to stop there you need to this even though you are if you are not a roman catholic this impacts us what is this bill all about it is payback for opposition against same-sex marriage there are political activists in the Connecticut State Assembly, in the U.S. Congress, in the U.S. Senate, and in every state assembly and Senate within, the, within our country. And basically, what are they doing? These people are literally organizing themselves in such a way that they're taking the First Amendment, wadding it up into a ball, tossing it out the window, setting it on fire, and they don't care. They're going to pass laws that basically would let them dictate how your church or any church is being organized if they don't like what you're saying or doing. This is a direct assault against all Christians and all people of faith. The state has no business telling the church or any religious organization how they ought to organize or forbid them from organizing the way that they see fit to do to do so is to completely eliminate and take away the ability for these churches to practice their religion in a free and open way and instead it is the state getting involved in monkeying with things and why are they doing it why are they wanted to want to attack this because they don't like the way catholics come down against same-sex marriage. There is a reason why we have separation of church and state, or the reason why the Constitution forbids the government from getting involved in tinkering in these things. It's specifically because there are times, just flat out, when the church and the state are at odds with each other. The church proclaims and defends God's law and the gospel and is beholden to the kingdom of God. This proclamation of law and declaring that God has said that there are certain things that are sins that the church cannot condone, nor can they in good conscience promote or support, but instead conscience dictates that they must speak out against it in those times. Okay, it is imperative that we have the free exercise of religion because there are many a time in human history when state and church are at odds. And the founders of this nation saw that and saw that it's bad when the state tells the church what to do or tells the people that they have to worship a particular way. This was the way of Europe before and during the time of the Reformation. And one of the things that makes this country great is that people can practice their religion without the government fettering and getting involved. This is a direct attack. And the people and the sponsors of this bill, believe me, at this point, it doesn't say that they've tabled it completely and realized, oops, I'm sorry, the Constitution forbids us from doing this. (laughs) What were we thinking? No. Instead, it's been tabled while the uh, state uh, attorney general checks into the uh, constitutionality of the bill. And this is just a sign of things to come sign of things to come, and this impacts all of us. In this particular case, especially if you're in the state of of Connecticut and you are a Protestant Christian, um, should this bill come back around, it is your job as a Christian in this particular case, as somebody who is both a citizen of the United States of America and a citizen of the kingdom of God, to openly oppose and come to the aid and defense of your Catholic brethren because if this law is passed and upheld what's to stop them from coming after protestants next nothing absolutely nothing here's another piece of alarming news coming out of uh, great britain uh conduct code threatens christian schools in great britain um this is in the baptist press uh, dateline is London. A proposed new code of conduct for teachers in Great Britain will force Christian schools to actively promote Islam and gay rights. That's right. You heard that right. Let me read it again. A proposed new code of conduct for teachers in Great Britain will force Christian schools to actively promote Islam as well as gay rights, the Bishop's, the Bishop's Conference of England and Wales has warned. The group said the legally binding code would undermine the religious character of schools uh, church schools by imposing a hostile secular morality. One section of the proposed code requires teachers to, quote, proactively challenge discrimination and, quote, promote equality and value diversity in all their professional relationships and interactions. Boy, does that sound familiar. I know why, because that's uh, what that nurse was brought up on charges. Remember the nurse who offered to pray for the lady who was sick and she uh, almost got sacked? What, what was it, What was her crime? Uh, She was guilty of breaking diversity guidelines. So now Great Britain is considering a code of conduct for all teachers, regardless of whether or not they teach in a church school or a secular school or a state school that would require them to proactively challenge discrimination and promote equality and value diversity in all their professional relationships before they can be registered. According to the London Daily Mail newspaper, complaints can be lodged against teachers who fail to observe the new demands, and teachers in schools can be punished if a complaint is upheld. Christian schools have, quote, an understandable fear that the call to proactively challenge discrimination could be used to oppose faith schools, per se, and the rights that they have in law. For example, to select leaders who are of, uh, of the faith, say, uh, Una St- uh, Stannard, head of the Catholic Education Service, it would be unacceptable to accept anyone to be required to promote something contrary to their own faith beliefs, and indeed it would not be possible for a person of faith to promote another faith. This is a matter of conscience. Not anymore! not any more. All right, we're coming up to our second break. When we come back, we're going to continue our walk through the gospel of Mark, and then we're going to listen to a very good lecture. It's not a sermon, but it's a lecture delivered by Phil Johnson of Pyromaniacs, uh, the, pyro, the team Pyro Blogspot, uh, and he's got a lecture that he did a while back called programs get your programs exposing the flaws of the fad driven church definitely worth listening to so uh stay tuned don't go nowhere if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's program so far you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com that's talkback at com. and we will be right back
1: If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
0: This month's Pirate Christian Radio Book of the Month for March is Theologia et Apologia. This important work gathers together 18 essays written by some of today's top biblical and Reformation scholars, including Michael Horton, Adam Francisco, Angus Minouge, John Warwick Montgomery, Craig Parton, Kim Riddlebarger, and R.C. Sproul. Collectively, the essays in this book teach and defend biblical theology, especially the theology restored to the church during the time of the Reformation. They address topics including the case for biblical inerrancy, a Christian critique in response to Islam, repentance, a defense of sola scriptura, and much, much more. This little-known theological treasure is a welcome addition to the library of any thinking Christian. You can purchase Teologia et Apologia at piratechristianradio.com. Click on the store link. The book only costs $38 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds help to continue to bring Pirate Christian Radio to you. So visit piratechristianradio.com and purchase your copy today. All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. And want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that we depend on you. Yeah, you. Podcaster, streaming listener. We depend upon you in order to pay our bills and continue to bring you this important radio outreach. If you're growing, we'd like you to uh, partner with us, help us pay our bills. You can do so by... uh, Sending in your gift to Fighting for the Faith at Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana. Zip code is 46038. Or you can log in to uh, fightingforthefaith.com and click on the Donate button. All right, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, slowly at that, because we've got a lot of stuff that we've been covering. And the reason why we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark is so that you can familiarize yourself with this particular Gospel. Why? Well, we want you to be versed in God's Word, grow in God's Word, and be able to teach it to others. Specifically, if you are a father, we would like you to consider teaching this gospel to your family, to your children. As the head of the household, you are the one who's responsible for the spiritual development, the biblical grounding of your children. Now, some of you I know are not theologically trained, and that should not stop you. Believe me when I tell you, the Bible's really not that hard. Now, there are some sections of it that can be challenging, a little bit difficult. But generally, is means is, and and means and, and but means but. There are some sections that are a little more challenging, and the good news is there's lots of good resources online that can help you with interpreting and properly understanding those things. That being the case, though, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark because it's a great action-adventure gospel, if you would, because everything happens immediately, and immediately they did this, and immediately they did that. And, we're, and when we last left off, Jesus, it's Holy Week, and Jesus is being tested by just about every religious group and person that you can possibly think of. And then we come to this passage, Mark chapter 12, verse 35, it says this, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ, that's the Messiah is the son of David, David himself, uh, by the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, this is a great little passage of scripture because in this passage here in Mark, Jesus is, in a way, giving a very veiled reference to his deity about who he is, and he's quoting from Psalm 110. In fact, just to make things fun, what we'll do is we'll go to Psalm 110, and we'll actually read what King David wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we'll read it in context. Psalm 110, starting at verse 1, says this, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power a whole, in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of, the, of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of melchizedek the lord is at your right hand and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath he will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth he will drink from the brook by the way therefore he will lift up his head great passage of scripture Psalm 110 who's it about well it's about jesus and David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So Jesus, asking the question here of the te- basically, he's in the temple, it's Holy Week, he's on his way to the cross, literally, he's just, you know, hours away from it at this point, okay? And he asked the people in the temple, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? Which, by the way, Jesus is the Son of David. But Jesus asks kind of a rabbinic question. How can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? David said himself, through the Holy Spirit, he declared that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus was speaking a profound mystery about himself. And now there's some other passages that we can bring to bear here, just to kind of answer the question. We read in Romans chapter 1, Paul opens up this epistle to the Romans. He says this, Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, the Christian religion Christianity teaches that Jesus Christ is none other than God in human flesh. According to the spirit of holiness and through his resurrection, he's declared to be the son of God. And he was also, according to the flesh, a direct descendant of David, which is why we have in the scriptures, especially in Luke and in Matthew, the genealogies concerning Jesus Christ. Where did he come from? Who were his direct ancestors? Now, here's the deal. There's not two Jesuses. There's not Jesus, the God man, the the God dude, and then Jesus, the man dude. Okay. That's not how it works. It's not like you got two pieces of plywood stuck together. Okay. There is only one Jesus. In much the same way, we are one person and we have a body and we have a spirit, but we're not two people. My body person and my spirit person, no. Okay? In much the same way, Jesus is the same way there. According to the spirit of holiness, and by his resurrection from the dead, he is the son of God, God in human flesh, and according to his flesh, his earthly nature, he is a direct descendant of King David, which is how God basically could promise David that one of his descendants would be on the throne forever. Because Jesus truly is a descendant of King David. All right, we continue in Mark. Let me get to the passage here. All right. So, now the great throng heard Jesus gladly, and in his teaching he said, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the place of honor at feasts. They are the ones who devour widows' houses for a pretense and make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. Together they made a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on great passage kind of turns things upside down jesus pra- praising a poor woman how is that possible why wasn't she experiencing her best life then you see god looks at something completely different all right we are now going to uh, change gears one last time and we're going to be listening to a lecture given by phil johnson phil johnson writes over at team pyro which is the Pyromaniacs website. And the name of this is called Programs. Get Your Programs Exposing the Flaws of the Fad-Driven Church. This is not a sermon. It's a lecture. But I thought the content of this was done in a good way, in a thought-provoking way, and in a biblical way, and worth passing along and sharing with you, rather than doing a stinky sermon. We continue to do stinky sermons, but sometimes I just mentally have to disengage from that because it drives me crazy. So here's
2: something good instead. This seminar deals with the tendency of so many churches today to let their programs be driven by fads and and prepackaged programs and all of that becomes the agenda of the church. And I'm going to try to show you why that is a really bad strategy for church leaders to follow. There are lots of pastors and leaders in the church today who are convinced that in order to stay relevant, they're supposed to watch all the latest trends and fashions and adapt their ministry to suit whatever happens to be the latest craze. And if you watch the evangelical movement as a whole, you'll see that's the way it flows. There are several major websites now on the internet that pedal programs and topical-driven sermons in boxes, complete with prefabricated PowerPoint slides and all of them based on themes that are suggested by whatever is the latest fad or whatever the latest hot movie or the number one rock song or the most popular television program or some other token of pop culture. And that is what's driving the church. You know that's the case if you even read any of the Christian magazines, Christianity Today magazine operates one of these websites, christianbiblestudies.com, where you can actually go and buy dozens of different discussion guides, they call them, for your adult Sunday school class or whatever, and they'll help you to lead discussions about the various plots and themes in popular movies. I looked at it the other day while I was preparing this just to see what they're doing, and they, the guides they are currently featuring include titles like Napoleon Dynamite and Aaron Brockwith, or Brockovich, is it? Whatever. <laughs> I don't even know the names of them, but I see this stuff there and I think, wow, in fact, one of the discussion guides features an utterly blasphemous movie called Bruce Almighty, which I only know from the previews of, but I know it's blasphemous. And the ad for this movie discussion guide at Christianity Today's website describes the movie this way, quote, It's a comedy that illustrates the power, presence, and goodness of God, unquote. That's a Jim Carrey movie, by the way, so I really doubt that it really illustrates the power, presence, and goodness of the one true God. Another site called sermons.com offers sermon series and Sunday school material based on old television series like I Love Lucy and, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies, that sort of thing, Andy of is a whole uh, gospel according to Barney Fife. Fads like those these days are accepted almost without question. And many pastors just dutifully embrace these fads. Thousands of church leaders have bought the lie that if you don't adapt your message to the demands of secular culture, you're really not being relevant. That's a lie. You understand that, right? In fact, I cannot think of any approach to church leadership that would be more in conflict with the principles of Scripture. But don't you understand, Phil? I mean... If we're not relevant, then people aren't going to come to
0: our churches because they're not going to be interested. We have to give them what they want before, that, before
2: we earn the right to tell them what they need. This is the very thing the Apostle Paul warned Timothy against in 2 Timothy 4.
0: Oh, don't be quoting Scripture to us, Phil. Come on, that's not relevant.
2: Because it caters to and it cultivates audiences with itching ears who demand that their preferences be met, who are easily, Scripture says, turned aside from the truth and turned instead to fables, sitcoms, Hollywood movies. That text, by the way, is Second Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, and that is the biblical description of apostasy. That's what apostasy looks like, and it's being peddled by Christianity Today at their website. And I don't use that word lightly, apostasy. That is exactly where the fadism of the contemporary church is leading the evangelical movement, apostasy.
0: Uh, By the way, the Greek word for apostasy, apostasia, means rebellion
2: against an established thing. It's a rebellion. Honestly, apostasy is not too strong a word for it. Much of the contemporary church, it might even be fair to say most of the contemporary church, is utterly, already utterly apostate by any biblical standard. And these days, I would not automatically exclude anyone from that criticism just because they happen to identify with the so-called evangelical movement. In my assessment, the evangelical movement, as a major movement isn't really evangelical at all anymore. In fact, if you use a biblical standard to assess evangelicalism as a movement, it's impossible to resist the conclusion that the evangelical movement in America itself, the whole movement, is on the very precipice of utter and complete apostasy. Think about it. Every major distinctive of historic evangelical Christianity is currently under attack from leading voices within the movement itself. The authority of Scripture. The do- Oh, they wouldn't
0: say they're attacking it. They're just rethinking it and reimagining it. You know, getting God out of the box. They're not attacking Christianity. They're just
2: retooling it. you know, Giving it a facelift.
0: No, actually, you're right, Phil.
2: Doctrine of justification by faith. The exclusivity of Christ. And even the Trinitarian view of the Godhead have all been attacked by authors and Christian celebrities who identify with the evangelical movement and who are accepted by the vast majority of evangelicals as sufficiently evangelical. Billy Graham, for example, the leading evangelical figure. For the- oh, I forgot to warn you guys. Um,
0: if you think that Billy Graham walks on water and can do no wrong and is theologically 100% sound... Uh, you might want to turn off the tape right here because that this next statement could mess you up. The
2: f- past 50 years in the estimation of most people inside the movement keeps giving interviews in venues like Larry King Live where he repeatedly has made statements that undermine the clarity of the gospel and question the exclusivity of Christ. And I realize that some people want to attribute statements like those to the confusion of old age or the effects of Parkinson's disease or whatever. But the truth is, Billy Graham has been making statements like that to secular reporters for almost 30 years now. And he's doing it more and more frequently and more and more blatantly and in more and more visible places these days. But I've got a newspaper, I mean a magazine article, that he, where he said the same thing in 1978. This is a long slide that the evangelical movement has been on. And look where it's led us. Bishop T.D. Jakes recently came in as number one on the list of 50 most influential Christians in America published by The Church Report.
0: Now, keep in mind, T.D. Jakes is a oneness Pentecostal guy, which means he denies the doctrine of the Trinity. That That makes him a
2: heretic. Jakes holds a version of oneness Pentecostal theology whose chief distinctive is a denial of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, I am not necessarily questioning whether T.D. Jakes is really the most influential Christian in America. But he's not a Christian. The Church Report compiled their list based on feedback from thousands of listeners, readers. And I'd, I'd have to admit, based on what you see in the lists of best-selling books published in supposedly evangelical publishing houses and sold in evangelical bookstores, Bishop Jakes may well be the most influential Christian in America. What I dispute is the claim that he's an evangelical. Because by definition, you cannot be anti-Trinitarian and evangelical at the same time. Oh, come on, it's
0: deeds, not creeds now, Phil. I mean, nobody wants that pesky doctrine stuff. I mean, how can you judge the man's heart? I mean, isn't it just good enough that he wears really nice suits and and he says that he's a Christian? Why would you judge his doctrine to throw him outside of Christianity?
2: Oh, I know, because God's Word tells us to do that. Good job, Phil. At least not by any historic definition of evangelicalism. Christianity Today is, this year, celebrating their 50th anniversary. CT was founded in the 1950s to be the evangelical answer to Christian Century magazine, which was at the time a liberal magazine that you could count on to champion virtually every wrong idea that came around. And Christianity today supposedly represented evangelicals who wanted to resist that. CT was supposed to be a voice for the evangelical movement defending rather than attacking evangelical principles. Can I speak freely? Please, you're on my program today. You
0: might as well. I was speaking tongue-in-cheek. This was actually pre-recorded.
2: Christianity Today has not been truly evangelical for years. CT has become exactly what Christian Century used to be, a forum where just about every theological aberration that attacks some evangelical distinctive can practically be guaranteed a sympathetic hearing. In the past year alone, the editors of Christianity Today have given sympathetic evaluations of open theism, postmodernism the emerging church, ecumenism, neo-orthodoxy, and at least a dozen other dangerous theological fads. And rather than safeguarding evangelical distinctives, Christianity today's main contribution to the evangelical movement has been to move the boundaries of the movement steadily outward so that now you can promote neo-orthodoxy, you can reject the doctrine of the Trinity, you can deny the exclusivity of Christ, or you can redefine the gospel itself and still be considered a card-carrying evangelical in good standing.
0: But, Phil, you know, you got to understand, I mean, you're just being narrow-minded. No, wait. Scripture says that narrow is the road that leads to life and broad is the road that leads to destruction.
2: Okay, continue on, Phil. You're doing a good job. Historic evangelicalism, the, the only kind of evangelicalism that existed since the time of William Tyndall, until, who coined that expression, by the way, until until your grandparents' generation.
0: Uh, you know, actually, Phil, I have to challenge that. By the way, if you are if you a Lutheran in Germany, you're not called a Lutheran. You're called Evangelisch. Evangel, yeah. So the, the term evangelical really goes back to the Lutheran Reformation.
2: At least that's the way I understand it. The only kind of historic evangelicalism there is really no longer even exists in america as a cohesive influential movement and i think we need to face that fact ironically if you are consistently and faithfully evangelical you're now outside the you're now outside the mainstream of the movement that has co-opted that name
0: i completely agree and on top of it finding a church is pretty
2: tough to do too And it's my conviction that the church as a whole, the visible church of Christ worldwide, is in more serious need of revival and reformation than the church of Rome was when Martin Luther first nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg in 1517. Right on. It's not even 500 years old yet, and the Protestant Reformation has become practically without any real influence. Now, I hate to sound so somber in my evaluation of the state of the things in in the church, and I also hasten to tell you that I am not a pessimist. I'm a Calvinist. Okay. We'll let it slide. You know, I like Horton and the gang, so, you know, um, we'll let it slide. You understand, I hope, that Calvinists, by definition, can't be pessimistic. What I'm saying may sound gloomy, but I want to assure you that I see the hand of divine providence in the outworking of history, and I know that God's purposes are being fulfilled and will be fulfilled perfectly in the end. I have no question about that. I am not a pessimist. But that doesn't keep me from making realistic assessments of the distressing state of affairs in the in the visible church today. It is disturbing. And it is as disturbing as it was in Martin Luther's day. We're just not as agitated as he got about it yet. And I'm convinced that the evangelical movement right now, at the beginning of the 21st century, is in a spiritual condition that it really isn't very much different from the medieval church just before the Protestant Reformation. Think about it. Luther had to deal with Tetzel, the charlatan fundraiser who went through Europe promising people miracles in return for money so that the Pope could build St. Peter's Church in the Vatican, you know, the big dome you see there. That was all built with money, collected by Tetzel, the guy who first inflamed Luther. Tetzel had little songs he would sing, you know, and it really irritated Luther. We've got at least a dozen Tetzels appearing daily on TBN, promising people miracles in exchange for money. Jan Crouch uses that money to make the sets of the TBN's studios more garish and more gaudy than any room in the Vatican. And she's also added so many of those tawdry pink hair extensions (laughs) that her hairdo has begun to rival the dome in the Vatican. (laughs) <laughs> Seriously, Tetzel, Tetzel used to peddle his indulgences with trite songs and sayings. And you know, There was a little ditty that actually went, as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. I don't know the tune, but that's how it went. And it rhymed in German, too. Modern evangelicals have become experts in writing doggerel and banal platitudes, that, and they've even made silly, superficial songs, the centerpieces of their liturgy. The medieval church was overrun with superstition and ignorance. We've got people reciting the prayer of Jabez every day who are convinced that it's a magical formula that's going to bring them wealth and good luck. The medieval church produced corrupt popes like Leo X and evil strategists like Niccolo Machiavelli, the cynical and unscrupulous political theorist who who taught basically that the end always justifies the means. We have our share of shady celebrities and and evangelicals with bad reputations and a thousand church growth experts who not only think the end justifies the means but many of them insist that pragmatism like that is the only viable philosophy for, philosophy for leading the church today. That's why we have so many fad driven churches. The medieval church saw a decline in doctrine and morality in the church and a corresponding increase in corruption, scandal, man centered worship. All of that is true in large proportions today within the visible evangelical movement, is it not? Worst of all, in the medieval era, the gospel was in an eclipse, and people were so woefully ignorant of biblical truth that men in Martin Luther's time could actually complete seminary and enter ministry without ever once having learned the first principles of the oracles of God. That was Luther's problem. He was thrust into the ministry with really no understanding of the gospel or, or the Bible. We are well on the road to that same situation today. Many seminaries are deliberately eliminating biblical and theological courses and replacing them with courses on business and marketing. And Christian leaders who call themselves evangelical are actually encouraging that trend. Listen, for example, to Tony Campolo arguing for today's evangelical seminary students to be taught marketing savvy rather than theology and scripture. This is from a book he co-authored with uh, Brian McLaren, which the book is ironically titled Adventures in Missing the Point. (laughs) And the subtitle is even more ironic. The subtitle is How the Culture-Controlled Church Neutered the Gospel, which the the title promises something really good. And yet, Capolo himself has missed the point And he's actually arguing that church leaders should follow the culture and study marketing techniques as opposed to studying theology. And he suggests this would be a good thing. Listen to him. I'll quote him exactly. He writes this. What if the credits eaten up by subjects seminarians seldom, if ever, use after graduation, were instead devoted to more subjects they will actually need in the churches, like business and marketing courses? It is not true that with a gifted preacher... A church will inevitably grow, he says. Good sermons may get visitors to stay once they come, but getting folks to come in the first place will take some marketing expertise. And then he says this. It was a marketing degree, not an MDiv, that Bill Hybels had when he launched the tiny fellowship that would one day be Willow Creek Community Church. Yep. He that's says, right. it's not.
0: That's right, and it shows. It shows. <clears throat> Bill Hybels, good marketer.
2: Theologian? No. Not so good. Not that Hybels is a theological lightweight, but he's brilliantly relevant, he says. And the relevance comes not from giftedness or theological discernment, but from thoughtfully studying his congregation. As any good marketer would, Campolo says, Hybels deliberately surveys his people with questionnaires in order to determine what they worry about, what their needs are, what's important to them. And then he schedules what subjects he will preach in the coming year, and he circulates the schedule to those on his team who are responsible for music and drama in the services. The result is preaching that is acutely relevant. But the process, he says, isn't something you learn in most seminaries. Maybe it's time some business school courses found their way into seminary, unquote. Now, I don't know where Tony Campolo has been for the last 25 years or so, But if that advice sounds the least bit novel or fresh to you, you really haven't been doing much reading. And you haven't been paying attention to the drift of the church growth movement over the past three decades. What Campolo is suggesting is exactly what evangelical seminaries began doing some 20 years ago. And pastors these days coming out of seminary have been carefully indoctrinated with the notion that they have to regard their people as consumers. Religion is packaged to appeal to the consumer's demands. And there are marketing agencies, actually, that offer seminaries classes in, in how to brand your, your messages, how to brand your church, how to appeal to the most people. Most church leaders these days are, therefore, obsessed with opinion polls, Public relations, salesmanship, merchandising, customer satisfaction, because they have been taught and encouraged to think that way by virtually every popular program of the past two decades. In 1988, some 18 years ago now, George Barna wrote a book called Marketing the Church. And it was published by Nav Press, who was at the time a mainstream evangelical publisher. A lot less mainstream and a lot less evangelical today. And in that book, George Barna said this, the audience, not the message, is sovereign. That's an exact quote from the book. The audience, not the message, is sovereign. That was his basic idea. And it's a notion thousands of pastors and church leaders have uncritically imbibed. And it has been parroted in virtually every major book on church leadership up through and including the purpose-driven life. The audience is sovereign. Their felt needs are what should shape the preacher's message. Anyone have a problem with that emphasis? I thought
0: God was sovereign, and I thought that the gospel message that he gave us is what we're supposed to be preaching because he's the sovereign king who decides what it is that the church says and does and believes and
2: Hmm. Opinion polls and listeners' response become barometers that tell the preacher what to preach. That's what Barna was calling for back in 1988, and that's what the evangelical movement has done. Listen to Barna. This is from that 1988 book, Marketing the Church. He says, if we're going to stop people in the midst of their hectic schedules and cause them to think about what we're saying, our message has to be adapted to the needs of the audience. Uh, no, it doesn't,
0: because the message that we've been given. By the way, Phil's actually—he's doing a fantastic job. I'm I'm responding to Barna. We don't have to adapt our message to nobody, because every single person that we talk to regarding the Christian faith is a sinner, and our message is repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. That applies to everybody, regardless of who they are, where they are, where they live, when they live, what subculture they're a part of, whether or not they have black hair, brown hair, white hair, white eyes, blue eyes, green eyes, brown eyes, dark skin, light skin, whether or not they like country and Western music, they live in the Midwest or in Southern California uh, coastal towns, whether or not they're yuppies, preppies, uh, groupies, uh, and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't matter. We don't have to adapt our message because the message that we've been given is universal. It applies to every single person on the planet who ever has lived
2: and whoever will live. When we produce advertising that is based on the take-it-or-leave-it proposition, rather than on a sensitivity to, to, and a response to people's needs, people will invariably reject our message.
0: Uh, no, they reject the Christian message because they are by nature at war with God and sinners not because we didn't meet their needs. You know, let me give you an example biblically. you all familiar with the Old Testament story of the Exodus. We've all heard of it. You know, God talks to Moses in a burning bush. You remember this? Remember Israel at the time of Jacob okay at the time of his son joseph goes to egypt eventually egypt forgets the fact that joseph was called by god to help save egypt nasty icky terrible power mongering evil pharaoh takes over and enslaves israel they are enslaved for 400 years finally god calls a murderer by the name of moses through a burning bush to go and tell pharaoh let my people go we all know the story right so what happens is, is that God pronounces judgment on Egypt. We have these plagues. Israel literally leaves Egypt, Exoduses Egypt, with God in the lead providing them with food every day, providing them with what they need, rescuing them from the hand of their enemies. God met all of their needs. And how did Israel return the favor? They set up idols, set up a golden calf and said, this is the God that led us out of, out of Egypt. Right? So the, The problem is not that we're, quote, meeting people's needs. The problem is that people are evil and wicked, that we are sinners by nature and we are in rebellion to God. Every single one of us is born at war with God. And whether or not we have our felt needs met is not going to make a wink worth of difference.
2: Well, you know, there's a certain sense in which that sounds good, but I like to compare it with the words of the Apostle Paul. Who in 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 through 5, said this The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves preachers, and they'll turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. What was Paul's point? What do you think Paul was telling Timothy? Do you think he would have agreed with Barna that therefore we have to adapt our messages to the preference of the audience because the audience is sovereign and we can't risk having them reject the message? That's not what Paul told Timothy, is it? Listen to what he did tell Timothy. But you, he said, fulfill your ministry. Preach the word in season out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. That is not unclear, is it? There's nothing ambiguous about that. That is what we are called to do as pastors, not to follow the fads and fashions of our culture, not even to follow the silly parade of evangelical fads that have assaulted the church in wave after wave for two decades running. Those fads and those programs are, are killing the evangelical movement. And I'm convinced that pastors who don't get back to the business of preaching the Bible will soon see their churches die. doesn't matter how big they are now. It's not going to last because, after all, the Word of God is the only message that has power to give spiritual life. And frankly, in my estimation the death of the fad-driven churches will be a good thing in the long term. It's really something I hope I live long enough to see. Now, some of you may be thinking I'm sounding like a pessimist again. After all, Shouldn't we be enthusiastic about the way the ranks of people who label themselves evangelical has swollen over the past 50 years? I mean, isn't it a good thing that evangelicals now have enough clout to help elect a president and be recognized by really most of the secular media as a movement to be reckoned with?
0: Uh, This was before the recent uh, survey results that show that evangelicalism hasn't grown at all in many places. It's shrunk.
2: Isn't that a good thing? Think about it. In the the late 1970s, some of you will remember this, when Jimmy Carter was running for president and the secular media, media first discovered the phrase, born again, you remember that? The average person in mainstream American culture didn't even know what an evangelical was. But evangelicalism has ballooned so much in size and visibility and political savvy, that last year, Time Magazine did a featured photo essay and a cover article titled, The 25 Most Influential Evangelicals in America. That was the cover story on Time Magazine. Look how far we've come. Well, if you think it's a really encouraging trend for Time Magazine to recognize that evangelicals have clout, you should actually read the article and see the collection of characters who made the Time Magazine list of 25. That article by itself would have been enough to convince me that the evangelical movement is in serious trouble. If I'd fallen asleep for 30 years and woken up to read that article, I would have said, evangelicalism is in big trouble. The list included people like former Lutheran-turned-Catholic priest Richard John Newhouse, Joyce Meyer, you know, the charismatic prosperity gospel jet setting preacherette. And T.D. Jakes was there, the anti Trinitarian bishop, and Brian McLaren, the postmodern guru of the emergent church movement who denies the authority of Scripture and wants to see the church make a radical break with just about everything distinctive about historic evangelicalism. They were all there. And you know what? 30 years ago, now, one of those people I just named would have even been included in a list of evangelicals because you know why? They're not evangelicals in any historic sense of the word. So what's changed? Is it that more people became evangelicals or is it that the concept of evangelicalism has just been expanded to become all-inclusive so that it really doesn't mean anymore? I'm going to go with the latter. You know the answer. The word evangelical has lost its historic meaning. These days it means everything, and therefore it means nothing. The evangelical movement has systematically and almost deliberately rendered itself useless as a force for the advancement of historic evangelical truth. Now, most of the rest of the people in Time Magazine's list of top evangelicals are people who are known more for their political positions rather than their theological stance. There were some good evangelicals in there, but most of them are politicos and pragmatists. One of them is Ted Haggard, the charismatic president of National Association of Evangelicals, which if you watch that organization, it shows in microcosm what has happened to the evangelical movement as a whole. It's become a political lobby.
0: And you'll remember,
2: this was before Ted Haggard's fall. The NAE's press releases these days, virtually all, are about political issues. Look at their website sometime. Rarely, in fact, I'm tempted to say never, do they speak on any issues that are specific to evangelicalism. It's not an evangelical organization anymore. I don't care that that's in its name. And it's absolutely clear where Time Magazine thinks evangelicalism's clout is being felt the most. It's not in spiritual matters, but in the realm of politics and culture. And you know what? They're right. The word evangelical used to describe a well-defined theological position. But, and, and you know what made evangelicals distinct was their commitment to the authority of Scripture and the exclusivity of Christ. But now evangelicalism is just a political lobby. And its representatives, according to Time magazine, and you don't hear many evangelicals protesting, no, these people aren't evangelicals. The representatives who are the most influential in the movement represent a wide variety of theological belief from Newhouse's Roman Catholicism to Jakes's heretical sabellianism to Joyce Meyer's radical name-it-claim-it charismatic hucksterism to Brian McLaren's anti-scriptural postmodernism. There is only one person in the entire list of Time Magazine's top 25 evangelicals who would even remotely qualify as a theologian, and that's J.I. Packer. But Packer himself has been on a quest for the past 20 years to make evangelicalism as broad as possible. Frankly, none of those people on the list would even agree among themselves on any distinctive points of doctrine. They wouldn't even agree on the essential points of the gospel message. The one thing they do agree on is that they'd like to see the evangelical movement become as broad and as inclusive as possible because they're swept up in the idea that this gives them clout and power. But you know what? That's not really... Historical evangelicalism, is it? That kind of latitudinarianism has always belonged to Socinians and deists and modernists and theological liberals. It's antithetical to the historic principles of the evangelical movement. I'm tempted to say, in fact, I will say it, the evangelical movement is essentially dead. And All that movement and activity that you see are just maggots feeding off the corpse. But I'll get off my subject if I'm not careful. There's another common trait shared by many of the people on Time Magazine's list of 25. For the most part, these are the fad makers. These are the people who have designed the programs that are peddled by the out-of-control Christian publishing industry and purchased and implemented with very little critical thought by hundreds of thousands of people in the evangelical movement. Rick Warren, who heads the list, is the father of the hottest prefabricated program ever, 40 Days of Purpose. Jem LaHaye is co-author of the Best-selling fad of all time, the Left Behind series. Packer and Newhouse have been the prime movers in forging ecumenical alliances with Rome. I talked about that yesterday. Probably the last bandwagon you could have expected evangelicals to jump on 20 years ago. Heibel's masterminded the seeker-sensitive fad. McLaren is the leading figure in the emergent church fad. And James Dobson and most of the other people on the list are the masterminds of the evangelical culture war fad which is a movement I would also classify as a fad, the whole evangelical political movement. Why? What is it that makes these trends and programs fads? I would classify them that way because they are all popular for the moment, but if you think about it, none of them has anything to do with historic evangelicalism or the biblical principles that made evangelicalism a great idea. Here's a short list of things all these fads have in common. Not one of these movements or programs even existed 35 years ago. Most of them would not have been dreamed of by evangelicals a generation ago. And frankly, most of them will not last another generation. They'll eventually all fade and die just like the Jabez phenomenon. And some poor publisher or wholesale distributor is going to be left with warehouses full of Jabez junk, way down workshop paraphernalia, what would Jesus do bracelets, and purpose-driven merchandise, all of which is carefully licensed and trademarked, just like the Mickey Mouse figures you can purchase in the gift shops at Disneyland. Now, when you consider those facts, doesn't the fad-driven mentality strike you as terribly, even sinfully shallow? Yes, it does. How is
0: it that we have exchanged the, the depth of God's Word and the truth found in the Scriptures for this stuff? That's my big question.
2: It is. And we have to ask, why is it that the culture of American evangelicalism has been so susceptible to fads. Why are evangelical churches so eager to jump on every bandwagon that comes along? Why do people sit and watch for these fads so that they can be the first ones on? Why do people so eagerly rush out to buy the latest book, CD, or cheap bit of knockoff merchandise concocted by the marketing geniuses who have taken over the Christian publishing industry? Why? By the way, I should say this. My background is publishing. And I love the historic influence Christian literature has made on the church. I have a great affinity for the Christian publishing industry. But I have to say, the whole industry has changed dramatically in recent years as Christian publishers have been bought out by secular owners and Christian publishing has become big business. Companies once run by godly Christians, such as Zondervan, have been bought out literally by men like Rupert Murdoch, who owns Zondervan, you know, and made part of huge secular publishing empires. Uh, Just keep this in mind. uh,
0: Rupert Murdoch, who owns Zondervan, also is literally the greatest distributor, not creator of, but distributor of pornography in the world through his different venues and uh, publishing outfits and television satellite networks. This is the guy who
2: owns Zondervan. And it has changed the face of Christian publishing. And to a large degree, it is the publishing industry that feeds and fuels the bizarre hunger for more and more fads and more and more programs. And a lot of people are getting rich off of it. And I've sat in meetings with publishers who have tried to convince John MacArthur to tone down his message, to soften his hard stance on controversial issues, to ignore things that are unpopular, to tell more funny stories. Publisher after publisher has tried to tell him that he could broaden his audience and sell a little more books, a lot more books, if he would just broaden his message a little more. One publisher... I'll tell you this story. I won't give you the name. I won't mention any names of the publishers. One publisher looked at some of John MacArthur's material, and it was the series on the Twelve Apostles. And they looked at it and told him, it's just too biblical. I kid you not, that was the exact words of the publisher, the editor. It's just too biblical. They said it sounded too much like Sunday school material. They wanted more contemporary stories in a book on the Apostles. (laughs) You know, baseball anecdotes, hip language, and a lot less Bible, they said. Too many quotations from Scripture. And you know what? Publishers turned down that material for a book idea for years. And the book was finally published anyway, without dumbing it down or removing a single Scripture reference. It was titled Twelve Ordinary Men. And you know what? Despite the publisher's predictions, it stayed on the bestseller list for more than two years. I think evangelicals are hungry for biblical material. But you know what? That's how all these fads are crafted. They are deliberately dumbed down, made soft and generic and non-threatening so that they don't rebuke anybody's sin. They don't endanger anyone's shallowness. They don't threaten anyone's comfort zone. And above all, they don't challenge anyone's worldliness. That is the way both the publishers and the people want it. That is the culture the evangelical movement deliberately bought into when it embraced the notion that religion is something to be sold to consumers like a commodity. Market-driven ministry has created an environment where unscriptural and unspiritual and unscrupulous men can easily make merchandise of the gospel. It has conditioned people to be like children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. That's Ephesians 4.14. And that is a perfect description of the fadism that has overtaken the evangelical movement in recent years. I first noticed that sort of trendiness, you know, that ebb and flow of fad after fad and every wind of doctrine. Trendiness was becoming a driving force in the evangelical movement, I think some 15 years ago. At first it seemed to me like the fads were a particular problem in the charismatic movement. You remember in the early 1990s, You had the Kansas City Prophets, they were all the rage and lots of books about that. For a couple of years it seemed like book after book on modern prophecy was coming out. There was a book called Some Said It Thundered that made the rounds for a while, making the Kansas City Prophets out to be the modern-day equivalents of Agabus in the New Testament. That lasted until the most prominent of those prophets turned out to be using his gift to manipulate women into lewd behavior. And then a guy named James Ryle wrote a ridiculous book called Hippo in the Garden. Ryle claimed that God revealed to him that the reason the Beatles' music was so successful was that they actually had a special anointing from God. And this guy, Ryle, who was a pastor, said uh, that God had told him he was going to release that anointing again. The Beatles had squandered it. Now he was going to put it on some Christian musicians. And at about the same time, Wayne Grudem released a book attempting to give an exegetical and academic defense of that kind of modern revelation.
0: This is an embarrassing recount of uh, Christian history here in America, isn't it? Sad to hear it, but we need to hear it, we need to face it, because what he's saying is spot-on true.
2: And soon it seemed everyone was all confused about whether God is still revealing truth. And in the charismatic movement, there was an unprecedented outburst of people claiming to have received all kinds of preposterous messages from God. I went to visit the vineyard once with uh, Lance Quinn. And um, we just slipped in on a Sunday morning service. Uh, We were doing some actually some research on the charismatic movement. We weren't there actually to see if we liked it. But uh, the thing I remember is two of their prophets got into an argument that day, and one guy sat over here a row behind us, and the other guy was across the room, and they prophesied conflicting messages. One of them saying the Lord was pleased with the elders of the church, the other one saying God was furious with them. And uh, nobody ever straightened out the confusion there. I wondered what the people in the church thought, because nobody ever stood up and said which of these guys had the true prophecy. That sort of stuff was going on. But that that whole prophecy fad died out within a couple of years, and it was replaced by the next big charismatic fad, the Toronto Blessing. And I could see the growing influence these fads were having by the volume of mail we would get from people in our radio ministry, our radio audience, who wanted to know what John MacArthur thought about the latest charismatic fad. Every time there was a new one, flood of letters, what do you think of this? And they, they began to be more and more and more. And it didn't make sense to me that people who understood that we had resisted the charismatic movement for decades would wonder, now that people are getting drunk with laughter, what do you think of this? (laughs) And the Toronto blessing phase, that fad, managed to keep the limelight for a couple of years. People would go to church, you know, get drunk with laughter. It was a bizarre and highly emotional fad. And it was pretty obvious from the beginning that this couldn't be sustained very long. And then there was the Pensacola revival, which brought an obsession with gold dust and gold teeth fillings and, you know, gold that supposedly miraculously appeared out of nowhere. Uh, That's still going on, by the
0: way, in the uh, Patricia King camp. Uh, Don't forget Todd Bentley and the gang. That was just last year. So these things have a way of, you know,
2: returning to us like... Vomit. You probably remember all that. I'm not going to bore you by recounting it. But I bring it up just to say that suddenly in the early 1990s, you could see this pattern, wave after wave of charismatic fads. And for a while, I was naive enough to think that this sort of trendy mania was uniquely a charismatic phenomenon. I never dreamed that the entire evangelical movement would get caught up in the same kind of fad-driven hysteria. I did notice this very strange and surprising fact in the early 1990s that no matter how bizarre things got, the latest craze always seemed to be able to draw in more people than the previous ones. So that there were a lot of formerly non-charismatic churches who were duped by the Toronto blessing. You know, that is not easy to explain rationally. Why would a church that has resisted charismatic influences for 40 years want to affirm something as silly and irrational and unbiblical and just over-the-top bizarre as a room full of people claiming to be drunk in the spirit rolling on the floor and laughing uncontrollably. Uh,
0: the reason why is because people don't want God's Word to be enough. They want God to speak to them personally. They want to experience the spiritual and god's word in and of itself is not enough and they don't know their bibles they don't know they don't know how to think biblically they don't know how to think critically and so they reach out with their feelings like a jedi reach out with your feelings luke feel the force flowing within you and as a result of it uh, they are being deceived by the devil
2: false teachers and even deceiving themselves But it shows the power of the fad mentality and the lure of a big enough bandwagon. If enough people do something, and if it becomes popular enough, it doesn't matter how bizarre or unbiblical or irrational it is, people will always line up to get in on it. And then these undulating fads started to spill over into the mainstream evangelical movement. The first one I noticed was promise keepers. For about two and a half years or three years, you were nobody if you weren't on Promise Keepers. And I remember someone, a friend who lives in another part of the country, called me up to talk about something. And before he hung up, he said, "Well, I see you at Promise Keepers? And that was before I was even really aware of the size and, and scope of what the Promise Keepers movement, what it was all about. So I was clueless about what he was talking about. I said, "You see me at Promise Keepers. What do you mean? And he didn't even explain to me what Promise Keepers was. He didn't think he had to. All he said was, well, everybody's going to be there. And it seemed like practically everybody was. And then we had the what would Jesus do era. And overlapping those was the Jabez phenomenon and the astonishing success of the Left Behind series. And suddenly, evangelical fads entered a whole new realm, publishers, we were literally raking in billions, not just millions, but billions of dollars with what would Jesus do jewelry, left behind books, and all the spin off books for kids, and coloring books, and Jabez junk, and coffee mugs, and t shirts, and pens, and desk calendars, and wall plaques, and literally whole catalogs of Jabez merchandise. And the fads were suddenly bigger than ever, but they were beginning to look cheaper, and they were beginning to have shorter shelf lives than ever before you know two years ago the mel gibson movie passion of the christ made a huge splash but that fad really lost steam before the dvd even hit the shelves so now you could buy that dvd i think for 99 cents because there were so many left over and then the biggest fad of all came with its own built-in expiration date 40 days of purpose A year ago, a year ago right now, the publisher was reporting that The Purpose Driven Life had sold more than 20 million copies, making this the best-selling nonfiction book of all time, literally surpassing, I think it was The Diary of Anne Frank, within a few months of after it was released. And in the past year, since I first gave this seminar, I looked it up, and the book has sold actually another five million, which is nothing to sneeze at. And there are several spin-off devotionals and journals and study guides and other derivative books, and some of them have sold copies in the millions. Let me tell you, that is not something Christian publishers are going to walk away from. And every major Christian publisher in the world is going to spend the next five years trying to replicate it. And that will guarantee more and more fads vying for our support.
0: I thought you said you weren't a pessimist. Man. So basically what you're saying, Phil, is that uh, for the foreseeable future, we could just expect more of this stuff coming out of Christian publishing in their search and desire to recreate the purpose. 40 Days of
2: Purpose fad. Oh, lucky us. It's not over. 40 Days of Purpose is already the most successful evangelical fad in the history of the world, making a whole lot of people really rich and guaranteeing that we're going to see a a lot of similar marketing plans and programs over the years to come. Now, I'm not going to try to squeeze in a critique of any of these things I've just named, least of all the purpose-driven life. Uh, Our own uh, Nate Busnitz wrote a review of that book. Uh, It is, uh, it said the the Crossway book called Fool's Gold, I think. And there are plenty of other critiques of 40 Days of Purpose and all the other programs I'm talking about. I imagine most of you have read enough of the 40 Days book to to at least get a a feel for its style and content. Let's talk about that book without critically reviewing it. Set aside the critiques for a moment. Even if we had no bone to pick with the content or the underlying philosophy of the purpose-driven life, Uh, Which we do, because Rick
0: Warren twists God's Word like a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness. I mean, cultists out there are not nearly as gifted at twisting God's Word as Rick Warren is, in the name of Christianity. And Zondervan published that
2: book. Is this really the kind of book that deserves to be the best-selling evangelical work of all time? No. Is there anything profound or original, or exceptionally brilliant about the content of this book. Is it great literature? Nope. Is it especially superb Bible teaching? No. Is it excellent theology made understandable in simple terms? Not even close. The truth is, it's not any of those things. The extraordinary success of that book stems from one thing and one thing only, a very clever marketing scheme that targeted, targeted a specific audience at the most opportune time. It it hit the shelves at the moment when evangelical Christians and the whole culture was ripe for fads and stampedes. And today the evangelical movement is filled with people who have been trained and conditioned and encouraged to respond to every wind that blows. Rick Warren thinks that's a good thing. And he compares it, actually, in his book to surfing, the purpose-driven church. He's got a little thing in there where he compares this to surfing. surfing, And he says, it's like you just ride wave after wave. And that, he says, is God's means of bringing about church growth.
0: You know, the Bible talks about being tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of false doctrine.
2: And in the book, The Purpose-Driven Church, he says this, quote, At Saddleback Church, we've tried to recognize the waves God was sending our way, and we've learned to catch them. We've learned to use the right equipment to ride those waves, and we've also learned the importance of balance. We've also learned to get off the dying waves whenever we sensed God wanted to do something new. And the amazing thing he says is this, the more skilled we become in riding waves of growth, the more God sends. I read that and I thought, oh, so that is why evangelicals have this proliferation of fads. We've just gotten so skilled at surfing the latest fashions that God just sends more and more of them. And they get bigger every time. That's one way to look at it. Biblically, I don't think you can sustain that view. I'm reminded of a character the comedian Flip Wilson created back in the 1960s. You remember Reverend Leroy? You surely remember his best-known parishioner, Geraldine Jones, whose signature catchphrase was, The devil made me do it. And Reverend Leroy himself was the esteemed pastor of the church of what's happening now. Remember? And in the 60s, that was funny. These days, it's no joke. It seems like every church in town wants to be the church of what's happening now. And that's an extremely dangerous position for the evangelical movement to be in because the fads keep getting more and more destructive, and evangelicals are less and less concerned with biblical discernment. And the next big fad is already here. It's making a huge impact. It's the emerging church. And since I'll be dealing with it in a different seminar tomorrow, I won't say much about it here, but I will say that one of the most frustrating things about watching fad after fad roll like destructive juggernauts as they get bigger and more deadly, professing Christians are becoming less and less discerning and less and less concerned about the danger of jumping on the latest fad wagon. Brian McLaren has at one time or another attacked virtually every distinctive of evangelicalism, the authority of Scripture, the exclusivity of Christ, the simplicity of the gospel, the principle of substitutionary atonement. And yet, there are still hordes of supposedly evangelical leaders who will caution you against writing him off and swear that he has valuable insight or important things to add. Something seriously needs to change in order to rescue the idea of historic fundamentalism, or historic evangelicalism, both actually, we have to rescue evangelicalism from the evangelical movement. And here's what needs to happen. Here's what needs to change. A new generation of preachers needs to rise up and be committed to preaching the Word of God in season, out of season, and be willing to say no to these waves of silly fads. Okay, Phil, I agree with you. And this is where
0: you and I have some common ground here. And this is something I would like to just open this up for discussion. If you want to send me an email on this, it'd be great. I don't think our time is best spent trying to reform these silly, mega-church, purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive, emerging people. They're gone. Instead, we need men who will go into the preaching ministry, even if that means being a tent maker. We need to plant churches, and we need men who will go into the ministry so that God's word and the sacraments will be administered. And we need to hold the line in those denominations where it still can be held, like the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, against the forces that would turn us into these types of things. We
2: continue. That come and go and leave the church's head spinning. It's killing the church. It's killing the evangelical movement. Scripture is better than any fad. Preaching the word of God is more effective than any new methodology contemporary church experts have ever invented. And if we would just get back to the clear proclamation and exposition of God's word and make that the centerpiece of all the church's outreach, I think there are enough preachers in this room alone to make that a substantial and positive influence. And in fact, I want to end today on a sort of encouraging and positive note. I have a a considerable amount of time left here. I'm talking about preaching the Word. And some of you who only hear me in the Shepherds Conference may think, he doesn't do that. He just rails on things he doesn't like. (laughs) So I want to go to the Word of God and just remind you what Scripture says about its own power to penetrate the hearts of the people we need to reach and also to confront and correct the very problems we've been talking about. Hebrews 4.12. Some of you don't even need to look this up. You have it memorized. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That is a rich text. It's full of meaning. It's full of significance. I actually wish we had two more hours to talk about it. Let me just take the last 20 minutes we've got and try to isolate what seemed to me the three main qualities of the Word of God that are highlighted in this text. And then let's carefully consider what they mean. First of all, it teaches us that the Word of God is powerful. The Word of God is powerful. That's what it says. The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That speaks of vitality, life, activity, energy. The word of God has a life force that is unlike any merely human book. It's not only alive; it has the power to impart life to those who are spiritually dead. Jesus said in John 6:63, "The words that I speak unto you, they are life; they are spirit, and they are life." First Peter 1:23, "We're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God." which liveth and abideth forever. James one eighteen. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. Psalm 119, verse 50, This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has quickened me. Your word has given me life, is what that means. You can take all of the great books and all the great literature in the world combined, and they don't have this life-giving power. No book changes lives like the Word of God. And that is a fact of history. That is not my opinion. You might occasionally hear a person say, that self-help book transformed my life, or that diet book was revolutionary, or that book on philosophy changed the way I think. Rick Warren makes a promise in the introduction to The Purpose-Driven Life that his book will change your life. But you know what? The only true life-giving and life-changing power is in the Bible, the Word of God. And it's something far deeper than any other book can legitimately claim. Yeah, but we
0: want our felt needs met. Phil, come on. No one wants to go to church and hear about those old, crusty, dead, white guys. I mean, well, Jewish guys. I mean, I don't want my life changed like that. I just want something practical I can apply to, you know, to
2: make my life easier. The Word of God renews the heart by... Giving spiritual life to the spiritually dead. No other book has that effect. But you know what? Every page of the Bible has a life changing power that is just as fresh as the day it was written. Shame on anyone for ever suggesting that it's irrelevant. We don't have to make it come alive, it is both alive and active. It is always relevant, it is eternally applicable. It speaks to the heart with a power that is unlike even the greatest of human works. And if you think about it, I mean, this is just a fact. Thoughts and opinions of men come and go. They fall from fashion, they fade from memory, but the Word of God remains quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And what is true of the whole is true of the parts. Every part of Scripture is alive and powerful. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is pure. Jesus said every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God gives life and sustenance. That's what we live on. That's what we live by. It's better than bread. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 says, man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. And I'm always amazed at the passages of Scripture that have been instrumental in bringing people to Christ. I grew up, myself, in a totally liberal denomination. That that I was a United Methodist, okay? I grew up in the United Methodist Church, was indoctrinated with liberalism until I was in high school. And, in fact, I nearly abandoned Christianity during my high school career. But I picked up the Bible one night, near the end of my senior year in high school, and just randomly started reading 1 Corinthians. And that was enough to bring me to Christ. My conversion was profound and dramatic and instantaneous. Quiet, it was just there in my own room. But you know what? The passage that drew me to Christ is not even one you'd think of as an evangelistic text. 1 Corinthians 3.18, Let no man deceive himself... If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. That text, that single verse, rebuked my sin and turned me to Christ and changed my life in the most literal way. I've heard people tell how they were awakened to eternal life by verses from the Gospels, the Epistles, the Psalms, and even some of the obscure parts of the Old Testament. The truth is, I doubt... There's a page anywhere in Scripture that has not at some time or in some place been used by the Spirit of God to convert a soul. None of it is superfluous. Second
0: Timothy 3.16 again. Oh, great points. Great, great points. And why is it we're exchanging, preaching God's Word for this other stuff? It could only be because the devil has talked us into it. The devil doesn't want us preaching Christ and him crucified or preaching God's word and making disciples. He would rather have us distracted by all this other bright and shiny stuff, the latest fad, the latest gizmo, the latest wave,
2: anything but Christ and him crucified for our sins. And all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. A few years ago, I spoke at a conference in Sicily where I met a man who came to Christ during a severe paper shortage after World War II because of a single page of Scripture from a Bible someone had thrown away. And paper was almost impossible to come by in those days. And so merchants used old newspapers and other scrap paper to wrap whatever they sold in the marketplace. And this man went to the fish market and bought a fish. And when he brought it home and unwrapped it, one of the papers that was used to make... The fish, the the package, was a, was a page from a discarded New Testament. His fish was wrapped in it. And he, he read it, really not knowing what it was at first. And this man, who had been a lifelong Roman Catholic and had never before even read a verse of the Bible for himself, became a believer because of that one page of Scripture. And his conversion actually was the beginning of the first significant Protestant movement on the island of Sicily. Listen, the word of God is powerful and alive. The Greek word translated powerful in Hebrews 4.12 is energes. It's translated active in some versions. And in fact, that's a good translation. It speaks of both things, something that is dynamic, operative, effectual, 1 Corinthians 2.13, the word of God which effectually works in you. And the word of God always works effectually. It always accomplishes its intended purpose. You know, you are never wasting your time when you're preaching the word of God. Scripture promises this. Isaiah 55.11, another familiar verse. God himself says so. So shall my words be that go forth out of my mouth... My word shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. That's a promise of God. And I believe it. Sometimes God's purpose is rebuke and correction. Sometimes it's blessing. Sometimes it's judgment. And you know the gospel is a savor of death unto death. For some, for others, it's a savor of life unto life. Either way... The Word of God is effectual, productive, powerful. It always produces the effect God intends. That's why preachers need to preach the Word instead of concentrating their energy on dissecting contemporary culture, giving motivational talks, or just doing comedy or whatever it is people do to fill the pulpit. Because the only real power for ministry... And it doesn't matter how many crowds you can gather or what kind of nonsense you can do to get people to listen. The only real power available for true ministry resides in God's Word. It's not in our cleverness. It's not in our oratorical skills. The power is in the Word of God. And our task is simple. As preachers, all we have to do is make the Bible's meaning plain and proclaim it with accuracy and clarity. And the Spirit of God will use that to transform lives. The power is in the Word. It's not in any program or technique.
0: Right on. Absolutely, he is spot right on. Where are these men? Where are
2: more of these guys? The Word of God is powerful by itself. And that's just characteristic number one of the Word of God. It's powerful. Here's characteristic number two. The Word of God is penetrating. The Word of God is penetrating. Notice how vividly the writer of Hebrews portrays this idea. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. The Word of God is like a sword, a two-edged sword, he says, which means it has no blunt side. It cuts no matter which way you swing it. Not only that, but it also has a penetrating point. It's piercing. And so you can swing it like a saber or thrust with it like a rapier, and all of that means you don't have to be highly skilled to use it with effect. In the hands of an amateur, it'll still work. And there's nothing so hard or so deeply concealed that it can't penetrate. It penetrates. In fact, look at that verse again. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, sharper, not as sharp as, sharper. No human instrument or worldly technique or psychological therapy is more effective than the Word of God to penetrate the human heart. It lays bare the true thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know what? We need to have more confidence in the ability of the Word of God to penetrate people's hearts. This is one of the real deficiencies in this generation of evangelicals. We don't have enough faith in the power of God's Word to penetrate a hardened heart. We think we have to wait until someone is open before we unleash the Word of God on them. Listen, if they are not open, God's Word is the best means of getting them to open up. All right, listen to what he's talking about here.
0: The seeker-sensitive movement. Tim Stevens, Bill Hybels, Rick Warren. All of these guys seem to think that you first have to get somebody into a state where they'll listen to you. No, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Start swinging that baby. It will open them up. It divides. It opens. You don't need somebody to be ready. You need to just swing it and trust it and let God do what God does with his
2: own word. This is a good point. Here's the whole problem with the seeker-sensitive approach to evangelism. Someone, somewhere, decided that it's necessary to have music and drama and other forms of entertainment to soften people up before we give them the word of God to prepare them to receive the Word, to open them, as if something besides the Word of God itself might be more effective than Scripture at penetrating their hearts. And all that stuff has become the centerpiece of ministry in these secret-sensitive churches. They, they really rarely ever do get around to preaching the Word of God. You know what? That's sheer folly and it's a waste of time because nothing is more penetrating Nothing is more effective in reaching sin-hardened hearts than the pure and unadulterated Word of God. All of our human techniques are, and all of our ingenuity and all of that stuff, we do just like dull plastic butter knives compared to the Word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. There's a story in the biography of George Whitfield about a man named Thorpe who was a bitter opponent of everything that is holy. And he and a group of his friends, all of them young, rebellious thugs, conspired together to mock and oppose George Whitfield's evangelistic ministry while Whitfield was preaching in Yorkshire, I believe it was. And George Whitfield, if you've ever studied his life or even seen a, a physical description of him, he had severely crossed eyes. If you've ever seen a realistic likeness of him, Uh, there are some pictures of him that have his eyes so crossed, they look like jokes, caricatures. And these guys used to refer to him as Dr. Squintum. And they called their little gang the Hellfire Club. And they would disrupt meetings and mock Whitfield on the streets and in public places. And generally, they tried to make his ministry a reproach in their community. But Whitfield's preaching had already made a deep and lasting impact there in Yorkshire. And these young ruffians absolutely hated him for it. And so this guy, Thorpe, uh, who did apparently a pretty good imitation of Whitfield, got one of Whitfield's published sermons and he took it to the local pub where the Hellfire Club was gathered to drink together while they made a burlesque of Whitfield. And like I said, this guy, Thorpe, was probably pretty good at doing impressions. And so he had all of Whitfield's mannerisms and gestures down pat, and so he stood in the center of this pub and crossed his eyes and began to deliver a derisive rendition of Whitfield's sermon. But as soon as he started to deliver the sermon, the Word of God pierced his heart because the text he was preaching this mock sermon from was Luke 13:3, "Except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish." And he suddenly stopped and sat down, trembling and broken hearted. Whitfield's biographer tells the story this way. I'm reading the exact quote from his biography. He says, the moment he read the text, his mind was impressed in a most extraordinary manner. He saw clearly the nature and importance of the subject. And as he afterwards said, if he ever preached with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, it was at that time. (laughs) His address... Produced a feeling of depression in his auditors. And when he had finished, he instantly retired, he says, to weep over his sins. He now associated with the people of God and became a useful minister of the New Testament. I love that. This guy's aim was to taunt and ridicule, but he accidentally converted himself. (laughs) Or rather, the power of the Word of God penetrated his heart and cut him to the depths of his soul. No wonder this guy became a preacher himself. And by most accounts, he was quite an effective evangelist because he knew so well the power of the Word of God to penetrate hardened hearts. Notice that the Word of God pierces to the very depths, even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It probes to the deepest recesses of the heart, no matter how hardened or how closed the heart might be. In fact, only Scripture can do that. Notice how militant this language is. It sounds like the language of armed conflict. Swords and cutting and dividing asunder of joints and marrow. This is vivid, destructive-sounding language. The language of warfare and devastation. And it's true that sometimes the Word of God pierces hearts as a judgment, without remedy and without healing. But I don't think that's necessarily the, the primary point the writer of Hebrews has in mind here. I think in this context, he's actually, notice, he's, He's encouraging his readers to examine themselves lest they fall away from Christ before they have truly embraced him with saving faith. He's warning them that it is possible to come close to Christ and yet fall away without entering into his rest, which is the rest that comes with redemption and forgiveness of sin. So he's talking about salvation here. And then he says this, verse 11, "...let us labor therefore to enter into that rest." lest any man should fall after the same example of unbelief. And then our verse comes immediately after that admonition. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. He wants them to allow the word of God to cut through their pretensions and their false professions and reveal the true thoughts and intents of their heart.
0: Now stop for a second. Those of you who've listened to Fighting for the Faith for a long time, there's a reason why I didn't want to interrupt Phil here. He's making some brilliant points. You've heard a lot of really bad sermons here. Do you think any of these seeker-sensitive sermons have the power in to convert somebody, to show them their sinfulness, and bring them to sorrow, contrition, and repentance for their sins and to trust in Christ? No, over and over and over again, that subject is never brought up. God's Word is just barely ever used at all. It's time to call the stuff out for what it is. It's an abomination. It isn't Christian preaching. It's not what God calls pastors to do, and it shouldn't be tolerated in the church anymore.
2: He's encouraging them to undergo this cutting. And this is a reminder that there is a painful process involved in regeneration. In Ezekiel eleven nineteen, the Lord describes what's involved in this process. He says, I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. Spiritual open heart surgery. This, by the way, is the very thing that was graphically pictured in the act of circumcision. According to Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, circumcision pictures the cutting away of the foreskin of the heart. Jeremiah 4, verse 4, speaks of the same thing. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Take away the foreskins of your heart. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he's a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit. Notice there's more scripture in this
0: seminar and this is a real this is a conference speech. There's more scripture in this than any of the sermonars that we hear from any of these purpose-driven guys. Oh.
2: That's the very imagery in our verse in Hebrews 4. That's what it calls to mind. It is the cutting away of that which defiles. Circumcision of the heart. The word of God is the instrument that makes this possible. Now if you think about it, Painful cutting is often the necessary prerequisite for a true and thorough healing. That's what surgery is all about. And that is precisely the ministry the Word of God has in the lives of those who genuinely know Christ. If you've never experienced the painful piercing of the two-edged sword, then you ought to examine yourself to see whether you're really in the faith. Because you can't possibly know Christ in a true and saving way unless the Word of God has rebuked your sin and cut into your fallen heart and convicted you and convinced you of your own desperate need of cleansing and spiritual heart surgery to deal with your sin. And that, I believe, is the very thing the writer of Hebrews is speaking about here. It's a wholly beneficial thing. This is a positive thing. Although the Word of God is like a sword that cuts deeply and penetrates to the depths, this is a necessary and beneficial incision that is ultimately designed for our own good. And for those who submit to the Word of God rather than resisting it, the cutting and probing of the two-edged sword always results in salvation rather than destruction. How can that be? Now, why this imagery? How can surgery be done with a sword? Well, that brings us to the third characteristic of God's Word in this text. First, the Word of God is powerful. Second, the Word of God is penetrating. Third, the Word of God is precise. Notice how this verse describes the ministry of the Word of God as precision surgery. It's not wanton destruction here. The Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, obviously, surgery would normally be done with a scalpel, not a sword. Scalpels are small and precise and razor sharp, but that's just like the Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. And the surgeon sometimes uses his scalpel, even under a microscope, to cut with great precision, precisely, sometimes dividing fine layers of tissue with just remarkable precision. That is exactly what's described here. The Word of God divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it is capable of great discrimination. It discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart, something that's not even visible to the human eye. You know, we, we can't look on the heart. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. First Samuel 16, verse 7 says only God can do that. We can't even correctly discern the thoughts and intents of our own hearts. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We are all subject to self-deception and blindness when it comes to judging our own hearts. And conversion helps with that, but it doesn't erase the problem. Proverbs 28, verse 26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But the Word of God reveals what is really in our hearts, and it correctly assesses our thoughts and intentions. It shows our motives and our imaginations for what they really are. And that's why it's capable of such precision surgery, even in the deepest recesses of our souls. The Word of God is precise and exact, and it cuts with painstaking accuracy. It divides what can't otherwise be divided, sharper than any two-edged sword, more precise than any surgeon's scalpel. That's the point. Well, my time is is gone. I'm going to have to cut this short, but let me just sum up the point. We ought to make better use of the Word of God in our ministry, and we must ignore all these evangelical fads that come and go. Right on. Absolutely. Amen. We're called to do that as pastors and preachers. Yep and ministers of the gospel. We have to remember that only the Word of God has the powerful, penetrating precision that is necessary to reach and revitalize hearts that are cold and dead because of our sin. And our world is full of people like that. And this is also our clear biblical mandate, preach the Word in season, out of season, no matter which way the winds of doctrine are blowing, and no matter how many fads and fashions come and go. Obey that mandate, and God will bless your ministry. Chase every bandwagon that comes down the road, and you will regret it on the day when you have to give account for your ministry.
0: That concludes... All right, so that's it. That was the lecture given by Phil Johnson, and I thought he did a fantastic job, and his points were very well made. That is what we face here in the Christian church today. It's a famine of God's Word by those prognosticators of church growth, the gurus and experts of leadership and business methods and marketing. The one thing they don't believe, and that is, is that they don't believe that God's Word can do what God's Word says it's going to do. Otherwise, they would be preaching the Word instead of all of their stupid methods and their seeker-sensitive, felt-need sermons. And I thought that Phil did a fantastic job of pointing out what God's Word actually teaches on the matter. Well, we're at the end of another program of Fighting for the Faith, and I'd like to thank you for staying with us. If you would like to continue to help us, please help us continue to bring this, uh, this radio program out to you so that we can continue to bring you a daily dose of biblical discernment to preach and proclaim christ and him crucified for your sins and to help you grow in your understanding of the christian faith and what is important when it comes to sound doctrine and good theology then would you partner with us and you can do so by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on our donate button or you can write a check and make it payable to fighting for the faith and send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 well, until next time, until tomorrow, may God bless you. And if you would like to email me, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll catch you next time. Bye.